0: Growing up, most of us have a version of the family holiday. For artist Lola Greeno, it went
1: like this. And once a year, we would pack up, the whole family would pack up and go to the muttonbird island for four weeks. And, uh, you know, it was to us, that was like a working holiday. Lola grew up
0: in a close-knit Aboriginal community on Truwana, Cape Barren Island, off the northeast coast of Tasmania. From early on, she learned to hold great respect for her cultural beliefs and practices, like bush tucker, snaring, mutton birding, and shell gathering.
1: I wanted to learn about the shell necklaces with mum, and uh, lucky I did, because they were the most important lessons to learn about.
0: All knowledge and skills to hand down on country to the next generation
1: That other knowledge is is taking the family to the beach with me and picking up the shells and identifying them in that sort of way. It's not just sitting around a table inside of a building, you know, making a bracelet or doing a workshop.
0: This is Object, a podcast about design and contemporary craft in Australia. I'm your host, Lisa Carl, from the Australian Design Centre. In Series 1, you'll meet the master people we call Living Treasures. What makes them a living treasure? What has driven them to a lifetime love of their craft? Is it the material, the process or both? How do they contribute and advocate for the arts? And what's their advice for makers who follow in their footsteps? Let's meet Living Treasure Lola Greeno. Lola Greeno is a highly respected and award-winning Tasmanian Aboriginal shell worker, sculptor, installation, and fibre artist. Australian Design Centre recognised Lola Greeno as a Living Treasure, Master of Australian Craft in 2014, and her Living Treasures exhibition toured 17 Australian towns and cities to 2019. Lola Greeno champions the traditions and culture of the Indigenous women of Tasmania's Cape Barren and Flinders Islands, particularly shell necklace-making, the oldest continuing cultural practice in Tasmania. Mariner shells, sometimes called rainbow kelp shells, are used to make shell necklaces. Lola strings these tiny, iridescent spiral shells together as well as making contemporary designs with materials like echidna quills, kangaroo vertebrae, possum skin and muttonbird feathers. Lola's work is held in several national collections, including the National Gallery of Australia. In this episode of Object, you'll learn about the role of insects in making a traditional shell necklace, how Lola creates for kids as well as adults, and what she wants every Tasmanian Aboriginal woman to know. Living and working on Palawa land in the north of Tasmania, Lola is an elder of the Truwana people from Cape Barren Island.
1: Welcome, Lola. Yampalinga.
0: It's a pleasure for me to be back in Launceston and to sit down with you, Lola, on your country. Can you tell me where you work um, and what does it look like in your studio?
1: Well, I I live in Launceston and um, my house is on the edge of the river, Tamar River, uh, Kanamaluka. so um, I get to look over the water. But I don't really have a studio, a particular room for a studio, and luckily I guess because shells are so portable I can move them around into any room, but lots of days, if you'd have come to my house two days ago... The dining room table would have been covered in display busts with shell necklaces on them, ready to be photographed to send off samples to Sydney. So that's the way it works a lot of time. And and other days, if you come a day before I'm going to go out into the schools, you'll see four baskets sitting on the floor all packed with kits to go out into the school to to work with kids.
0: Mm. So it depends on the day, depends on the stage that
1: you're at. Yes, Absolutely.
0: How are shell necklaces unique to Tasmanian Aboriginal women?
1: Tasmanian Aboriginal shell necklaces are unique to us, unique in the way that um, our earlier women, um, you know, like Trunkadini, Fanny Cochran smith way back to those um, right through my generation of families, they were collected mariner shells in a very unique way where the women had to obviously study the environment first you know, you've got to remember the traditional necklace was just threading the King Mariner. So the biggest of the of the species of the mariners in Tasmania is called the King Mariners. And if you look at some of the old images of one of the tribal men wearing just the King Mariners and he's made handmade string and tied a knot between each one, that would have taken days to get enough. Because they used to make really long necklaces too. Some of the earlier ones I read were six foot long, I think, you know, long. And you see some of the ones at Trochanini wearing, or or even Fanny Smith, worn with several strands around the neck. So all of those practices and processes make it pretty unique to us. And these shells don't breed everywhere. You know, it's gotta be a special place to breed so they would have had to know their areas, their cultural place, would have had to know their country, where to walk. They wouldn't have been able to look at tide charts like I do today and they would know by the moon and the stars and when that was going to be a low tide. In those days, they would have lived on the edge of the the shore and collected their shells and taken ashore and (laughs) had to rot them out by the insects you know, whether it was flies or ants. Then they had to light a fire and I'm suggesting they probably would have placed their mariner shells in a, in a bigger shell, like an abalone shell, and sat it near the fire to get that green smoke to smoke the shells and then rub the outer coating off one by one and thread it onto sinew from the kangaroo tail. and So that was the traditional way of the shell necklace.
0: Going back a bit, Lola... I'm interested in your family and your early years, and how you learnt to make these necklaces.
1: I come from Cape Barren Island, and you know all my family come from the northeast. And in fact, from my grandfather goes his family goes right back to Manalagena, which is the tribal warrior of northeast and and the islands. We we lived in a not a huge uh, weatherboard house, but we had quite a, a a bit of land around it. I think we had about five acres of land. And the front of it fronted onto the beach, which was lucky. What I remember is that my mother's grandmother was involved in making shell necklaces. I believe it went back about six generations. She left jars of shells in a house that my mum was given a house to live in by her uncle. And so my grandmother left jars of shells in there, which was very symbolic in a sense of handing it to mum. And uh, I wanted to learn about the shell necklaces with mum and uh, lucky I did because they were the most important lessons to learn about, how she, you know, went and picked the mariners from the seaweed the traditional way, how she got them to what we call rot out, put them in jars outside under a tree. And I said to her, you know, sometimes I have difficulty that the insects won't come and do their job. And she said, well, you put some raw meat in the jar and that'll attract them, you know, and all of those very useful hints. So what kind of knowledge then is needed to gather the shells? Well, the first knowledge you need to know about the environment, obviously, you know, the first thing we do if we're going to go back to the island... Um, you should be looking for a spring tide and sometimes you you may only get three or four in a calendar year. Mm. So we want the best tide, especially for the green mariners. It's got to be less than 0.5 of a metre. Uh, you don't really want it any deeper than that because we walked in the water to do some videoing and, you know, I was almost falling over. So it get, if it gets up around your knees um, and you're not so steady on your feet, especially if it's soft soft um, seabed under you, or a bit boggy, um, you can be very unsteady. So um, that's a safety aspect. And also not to over collect from the one area, you know, leave it, leave some there for it to rebreed because they, they breed over a 12 month cycle and their full um, yearly cycle finishes at the end of April. Mm. They, they, they should have grown to their full potential. After the end of April, see they meant to go out in the deep water and mm. and have uh, uh, what they call drop their spat, which is their eggs, and so they breed and then they come back into shallow water again at the end of the year. So
0: mm.
1: now, I imagine the collecting process would be fairly physically taxing as well. It is because you know you've got the tide, that goes out, we always try to get there half an hour before that tide's registered. Say if it was 9.30, we'd get there half an hour early. So you just get it as it's going out. And you've probably got an hour and a half, two hours, to get that before it starts coming back in again. Mm. Um, So you're bending over for all that time down to your ankles. um, And it is back-breaking. And um, as I said, in trying to stand steady on your feet Mm. as well. Mm, Uh, While the waves are lapping
0: around you. Yeah. Yeah. This, is the sea telling you something about specific kinds of shells as well?
1: Um, it does because there's two sea, uh, there's two types of seaweed or kelp that they grow on. So the bubble one you'll always find the blue mariners, and the green ones are on the rib, what we call the ribbon weed. Your work goes through four stages um, to make a necklace: uh, the
0: harvesting, collecting, cleaning, stripping, sorting, and preparing for stringing. What
1: kinds of tools do you use for, for each of those stages? Um, I use a tailor's haul to, to pierce um, most of the shells. Some of the tougher ones or we found by using, Rex has been helping me as well to drill some of the, the shells, um, especially the strong ones, because then you get a much uh, direct round hole so it doesn't It doesn't shave the thread as it's been threaded, so that's been quite successful. So I've been using a Dremel drill.
0: So you learnt to make shell necklaces with your mum. What happened next?
1: So mum and I did some work together, and I think the first exhibition we had was in Queensland in a commercial gallery, and then those necklaces went to the National Gallery of Australia collection. So
0: that was back in 1991, that yeah. exhibition in Queensland with your mum. Was that exhibition back then in, in the early 90s, did that have an impact on you? Was that kind of the start of your career
1: as a maker? I think it was the, the, probably the start because mum was very excited and she got me excited about, you know, us working together and the very first shells I made with mum, I felt like they were mother-daughter... Patents, very first ones.
0: Over the past 30, 40 years since that time, um, you, you've made a lot of work. Can you describe some of the objects you've made from that time, sort of up till now? One
1: of the pieces that's currently with on tour with Made Worn, with the cut shells, they were given to me. And this lady was just at a little market stall and she saved these for me. And do you reckon you can do something with these? And I said, I certainly will. And when I took them home, then I decided to use some white cockles in between to make them into a more effective design pattern mm. from the shells. And and they're quite beautiful. It was startling in some of those images that, that you've got on the web or in the yeah, publication. It's a beautiful piece. Mm. Mm. In that same collection is um, one that I came up with using um, the King Mariners, you know. Again, they're very scarce and hard to get. So, I wanted to place a number that sat around the front of, you know, your neck or chest, because I've made it a bit longer, and then finished it off with the smaller blue Mariners or the green Mariners. And it's been very sought after, I might add. So, Mm. the number I've made have gone out there. So yeah, I felt that was very special too. Mm. So it does make you think. you can you can always go back to your traditional way, starting from the traditional shell. As um, needles came into play, the women then experimented using more shells, uh, there's another one called the rice shell, which is the tiniest shell, and that's threaded directly with the needle on, onto the thread.
0: hmm
1: And a toothy, you know, some of the, and like the shells called gull shell and black crow and penguin shells. Penguin, for example, is more for the shape and not the colour of it, obviously. So I think there's about 30 assorted shells now that, that's used in the necklaces. Mm-hmm. And bringing through to between that and today, I created one called uh, the K Baron Goose Necklace, which I really did more for the kids. So that when you look at the goose, it's it's got uh, you know almost an orangey coloured beak, and so we've used one like an oat shell for that, and the grey gull shell represents the grey feathers, and it was displayed somewhere with language next to it to help the kids count in, in language with using the shells. Mm-hmm. So that that was pretty special.
0: Lolly, your work involves um, continuing traditional cultural practice of shell necklaces, also new creative expressions that use other natural materials like echidna quills and muttonbird feathers and gum nuts. What are the
1: cultural protocols that you observe in your making? You know, as a young kid living on Cape Barron, Apparently my Uncle Ted was one day had a a kinder and he was cleaning it. And so he had it dipped in a bucket and, you know, was pulling the fur and the quills out. But I ran in and said to Dad, do you know what Uncle Ted's doing? He said, no, what's he doing? And I said, oh, he's out there cleaning the chook, Dad. But first of all, he's got to take out all the splinters. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently, the, they called them porky So apparently, the meat—I haven't eaten it—is um, very much like pork. So okay. that was that They scalded it and cleaned it, and him and Mum ate it. So, uh, so that's how that came to be. You know, the the quills are pretty natural part of the fa- or you know connected to a story in the family, and mm. because they used to eat it, it was one of their foods. Mm. But the ones I get now, of course, I apply to De peewee to pick up the roadkill. But I take them home and bury them. Mm. I, I tell people I give them a spiritual burial, and they they can be in the garden for a couple of months, and it's good for my garden because mm-hmm. I leave everything there and and just retrieve the quills and give them a scrub and and then make something. It was funny, you know, using them the first time because you know they roll all over the table. <laughs> and I thought, how how am I going to keep these two? <laughs> in one place. One of the things that really struck me about the the exhibition in the end was the variety of materials that were included.
0: Stephen Goddard is a graphic designer, lecturer and exhibition designer who designed Lola Greeno's Living Treasures touring exhibition?
1: Feathers, or echidna quills, or with with animal vertebrae, or you know kelp, and there's this sort of extraordinary creativity in the materiality that she employs.
0: So, as well as as your work, uh, your creative work, you also worked as a program. Officer for Aboriginal Arts at Arts Tasmania Uh, for 13 years, from 2000
1: to 2013. What did that work mean for you? That was amazing because when I got there, they'd had a non-Indigenous person in that position, point two position, which was hardly anything. Probably back in 2000, people said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, look, I think we should really be trying to ensure that every Tasmanian Aboriginal woman knows how to make a shell necklace. And we also should look, review our old baskets. You know, the plants used in those, those five unique plants, are still growing, and we just need to know where they were. And we did, we did both of those. Um, so we wanted to, to go across families and down through families. Mm. Um, So I feel that that's been very successful in a sense, leading the way for that. We revised the the shell necklace by by offering residencies Mm -hmm. and with the basket exhibition was called Te which was um, sharing knowledge and skills. And that exhibition also toured the country for a few years Mm -hmm. and and that made women proud and, and it has encouraged a lot more to to do this and carry it on because it was lost in families, some through, you know, stolen generation cases and others through um, mothers that died before they had a chance to to teach their daughters about it. Mm. Mm.
0: And you continue to educate children and adults about Tasmanian Aboriginal culture and shell stringing through this sharing of stories in educational workshops. And I know this work is ongoing and critically important for you.
1: You find it rewarding? I do, absolutely. I, but the kids are so rewarding. I mean, I just, the day we ha- I walked into this class at Riverside Primary, the room was decorated in bush tucker, posters, shells, paintings, ochre, cards, whatever. And I was mi- almost mesmerised. I almost couldn't concentrate, but I did, of course. And then, you know, they started producing these bracelets and one of them came up with this really, I was staring at her across the table, thinking, Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. <laughs> How these kids come up with their their lovely patterns and ideas and just she'd use one of these big big black shell and then sat a little white shell in and it looked like a pearl oyster floating inside of something and it was just so special.
0: Lola, when you step back and see yourself as one part of a lineage of
1: makers who come who have come before you, who comes after you? who comes after me will be my daughter, obviously, which she 's pretty well, she loves making when she comes home, and my granddaughters obviously you know um, I, I want them to be excited about this, and I, I want they responsible to carry the, this on so that this practice doesn 't die out it has to continue mm, really important. My granddaughters have been and collected and found it great in fact one of my granddaughters just really went for it and so she was the star of picking uh, the shells this time which was great how old is she love she's 15 mm. and she's clever and she talked we did a little little tiny little workshop on flinders with some friends from melbourne and um she just went for it she said nan you want me to do another necklace with those tiny little <laughs> shells
0: <laughs> you said no they're mine <laughs> So, Lola, is there one thing that stands out for you from all that you've achieved?
1: I think the Living Treasure um, show was the most significant thing that I've done in my life and very proud to have been involved in that. I th- think, you know, you know, earlier working and you don't quite understand what this means. I understood of, about putting an exhibition together and I even remember asking one of my ex-lecturers, you know, how many pieces should I be looking at for a solo show? <laughs> We were just delighted when the Australian Design Centre um, first approached us with the idea of um, honouring Lola this way as the 2014 Australian living treasure.
0: Richard Mulvaney was the director of the Queen Victoria Museum and Art Gallery in Launceston, Tasmania.
1: In many ways, Lola um, has been the last person to champion herself. She is um, shy and and really probably not personally aware of just what a great artist she was. So it was a proud moment that day. Then the exhibition opened, and more importantly, um, you know, it was for Lola to be seen by her family, her friends, her peers, and then, of course, the wider Tasmanian community in her own town was, uh, I thought, just really wonderful uh, recognition for her. and then thinking yeah but we can divide it into sections and that part that was about the family history so having the grandchildren make some bracelets in it and my daughter making a necklace mm. and me and i think i had we had one of mum's in it and that's where it went out around the country and it really did open it up to the world i mean when i first started our local museum hardly had any of our shell necklaces in there. I know they didn't have one of my mum's at that stage Mm -hmm. and so they gradually bought a few from the local elders. But, you know, now I think um, my necklaces are in every state and territory just about, probably not in Northern Territory or WA. We have to do something about that. (laughs) You might. (laughs) And in the National
0: Gallery of Australia in Canberra as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. In fact, only recently uh, you shared a photo with me of uh, one of your necklaces projected onto
1: the front of Parliament House in Canberra. How did that come about? Um, actually, the Parliament House Library has just purchased um, a necklace and said, oh, but we're probably going to, you know, it's going to be registered in our collection, blah, 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 and we may want to put it in this um, festival. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's fine, I'm used to being exhibited. But then all of a sudden, you know, she sends me this beautiful image of of it being shown on the, as a light festival, and I thought, wow, that was very special, and it is.
0: Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful image, so um, we'll be able to share that Mm. um, with this recording.
1: Yes, it'd be great. For
0: people to see. And Lola, we spoke about acquisitions a moment ago and um, and how your work is in many public collections, but I, I think... I would maybe right in suggesting that um, having the whole of the Living Treasures exhibition acquired by the Queen Victoria Museum and Gallery here in Launceston is probably very important to you.
1: Yes, absolutely, because it wasn't known. Like Mm -hmm. I think I said before Living Treasures, we weren't on the map, Mm -hmm. Um, so nobody knew of us, how important. And we do have a really significant history to go with our shell necklaces, Mm -hmm. not always in, in other Um, Indigenous communities around the country. Ours is very special Mm. and we need to keep telling that story. It's a family story. It came from my grandmothers and most importantly, you know, from my mother, me learning. Now, my granddaughter did her first workshop on Flinders a couple of weeks ago and I hadn't written anything down for her. And she talked as though I was talking. She was trying to describe the penguin shell. She said, if you hold it up in your thumb and your forefinger, it's the shape of a penguin as though it's walking down the beach. It's not the colour of a penguin. And so I thought, wow, she, she's just taken this on, you know, oral history like we that's the way we're meant to hand it on. Mm-hmm. And that will be her family story that she will have. So that's, that's the strength in the family story is... And everybody's story is going to be different, um, but I'm pretty proud of where mine came from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: That was Lola Greeno looking back on over 40 years of practice. I was really struck by Lola's long-standing commitment to passing on this cultural tradition, from working with her own grandkids to school kids, to her dream of having every Tasmanian Aboriginal woman knowing how to make a shell necklace. You can see photos of Lola's work on the show notes page, including her stunning King Mariner necklace. And there's a behind-the-scenes video of Lola's Living Treasures exhibition that shows her work in detail. Just go to australiandesigncentre.com slash podcast. And in the next episode of Object, you'll meet Master Potter Prue Venables.
1: I just thought nah this is what I really want and suddenly I I had two jobs in potteries and was learning a whole lot of things but I didn't feel that I was understanding how I could make work that belonged to me.
0: Object is a podcast by the Australian Design Centre. The Gadigal people of the Eora Nation are the traditional custodians of this place we now call Sydney where the Australian Design Centre is located and where this podcast was made. We'd like to thank the Australia Council for the Arts for funding support for OBJECT. You can follow the Australian Design Centre on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. OBJECT is produced by Jane Curtis in collaboration with Lisa Carl and Alex Fiveash. Thank you for listening.